Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil and my guest today is Justin Moser. He is the Director of Video Strategy and Operations at The Post Game. If The Post Game sounds familiar, we had an episode of Ryan Delaney of The Post Game a few episodes back. So if you want to learn some more about what they're doing and who the people, the incredible people are that they employ, go make sure to check out his. But while you're here, definitely pay attention to Justin's. He has a very interesting career and how he got into what he's doing. He's always loved sports. He got into sports journalism, didn't quite love sports journalism, but then got into the data and analytics side of YouTube and has been able to help sports YouTube pages absolutely blow up what they're doing. Um, I think it is so cool and he is so smart and so interesting to talk to. I'm very, very grateful that I got to have this episode and, and just ask him all these questions that we kind of, no one really knows. I mean, he knows, but like no regular people know how YouTube works. So it's really cool to get to see him here and understand where he's coming from. And don't wait or, or wait till the end because he has an Instagram famous dog. So we'll, uh, we'll make sure that's in there too. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Justin Moser. Today, my special guest, Justin Moser, Director of Video Strategy and Operations at The Post Game, formerly with Edelman. He worked with and at Wisconsin for a minute, the Big Ten, Dick Clark Productions. Justin, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. The pleasure is all mine. I already got to hear your story once. I'm excited to hear it again just with the, the red light on. But the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Uh, See, I I love sports because at a very young age, uh, I was exposed to the Chicago Bears by my father. And uh, season tickets for football have run in my family since before I was born. the my all my both my parents are from Denver and they've had they had Bronco season tickets since I think the 70s and when my dad moved to Chicago to pursue his uh, law degree he picked up bear season tickets on the cheap because they weren't very good uh, in the in the 80s and uh, I've been going since I was like probably five years old to games um, that was really my, my start with with watching sports but over time I also grew a really big affinity to uh, sports cards and sort of became addicted with the, st- with the statistics and analysis side of sports. So um, I could probably talk forever about what I like about sports, but that's how I got started. And from then it's just kind of snowballed into my, my love of, of all different sports and statistics surrounding them. And, you know, I was a decent athlete growing up, but I just pretty, I just marvel when, at some of the ability that these athletes have. Oh my gosh. That is, it's incredible. Just the one for me this year, that was recent. Uh, we were in, Columbia, Cleveland, Ohio, visiting my one friend, and we got to watch the Alabama LSU game. And that one catch Thaddeus Moss had, like at the right. goal line with his feet in. Granted, it really wasn't a catch because his one foot went out, but just the awareness. The ability, yeah. Oh my gosh. And they kept showing that pylon view, and we're all like, we're half in the bag at this bar. We've been in it for like three hours at this point, just drinking and, and eating. And they just keep showing that pylon view over and over again. And I like had tears in my eyes of how beautiful 
that catch was. And no, man, I, I totally agree. Just some of these athletes and what they're capable of. And that's pretty sweet that your dad got season tickets for so cheap. Little did he know the 85 bears would be rolling around soon and uh, change everything a bit. Exactly. And, after yeah. that, and then after that, it got a little, it went back to being the good old bears again. And uh, yep. that's kind of <laughs> where it is today. I hate the Eagles, but man, that double doink every time makes me laugh. But I know, I know. It, I was there. Is, I was there. It was terrible. <laughs> oh my goodness. No way. Oh, yeah. Geez, I, went, I went home. I went home to catch that game and it was uh, not, Oh man, especially because he made the first one. That's the worst part. Yeah, I know, right? That's the worst part. But um, all right. So, sports journalism, journalism in general, and sports journalism. That um, you always wanted to do it, right? Or at least at some point, you got the affinity for it. Where Where is that story where you decided, hey, I kind of want to write and, and talk about sports for the rest of my life, or at least try right. to? So I, I actually fell into sports journalism, sports writing because of my love of statistics. Um, my dad had. Uh, it's funny, I didn't expect to mention my father so much in this podcast, but my father is a lawyer and he had a client who was in charge of the performance art department at USC, who was a, became a very close friend of his. And when um, she found out that I was going to go to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison as a freshman, she reached out to the athletic director and the sports information director at USC and said, hey, I know this really you know bright kid, he likes sports statistics, could you maybe get him a job in the athletic department? So I started doing, so basically the sports information director at USC, who was in charge of doing all this athletic communications for the entire, uh, every program, um, reached out to the sports information director at Wisconsin, told them about me, I got an internship, and I started doing sports statistics at games like at soccer matches, I would show up to football games every Sunday, uh, or sorry, every Saturday, <laughs> and, that's, and, uh, and do the statistics in the booth, and, and just while my friends were getting drunk, I was uh, working, basically, but um, little did I know that job actually developed into not only sports statistics, but sports writing. Um, and I learned quickly that uh, although I got into it from like maybe the math or statistics side, I did and very much enjoy interpreting box scores, um, explaining, explaining what happened in games to people in a writing sense. Um, and then that dictated my major. I ended up becoming a journalism major at the University of Wisconsin, planning on being a business major because I just kind of fell into this job and, and found out that I was pretty good at it. And that's always nice too, right? You always want, everyone wants to do something that they're pretty, pretty good at, or at least you enjoy, um, you know, maybe enjoying it can, can mask how good or how bad you are at it. But as you said, I mean, like even, even with sports, with school, you always want to continue to do the thing you're good at because you have more fun. I don't care what anyone says. Winning is fun. Uh, mm -hmm. right. It's always funny. You know, when you have that coach, it's like, you guys want to play to win or play to have fun. It's like, well, we want to play to win because then we all have fun because we won and everyone yeah. likes winning more than losing. And so I, with so sorry, I, I had a, I had a, I was very fortunate that when I was at the University of Wisconsin, we had some amazing athletes come through. We had uh, Russell Wilson was the quarterback my senior year. JJ Watt was at Wisconsin when I was there. So winning was the culture at Wisconsin. And you know, before I went there, I'd say Ohio State, and Michigan were kind of the boogeyman of the Big Ten. But Wisconsin, while I was there, was easily you know right behind Ohio State or the most competitive at, at most major sports when I was in school. So winning was was very fun. And that's, uh, so I used to watch a lot of Big Ten. I still do. Um, so I used to be a Penn State fan, not really a Penn State fan anymore. So I used to just watch a lot of Big Ten football. Uh, and I hate Ohio State. But that year, I fell in love with Russell Wilson and what he was capable of. And it was just insane. If I'm not mistaken, two weeks in a row, Wisconsin lost on like Hail Marys, essentially. I know the one to Ohio State, I think the other was to Michigan State, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins yep. ruined my senior year. Yeah, yep. I remember and watching I that game. Because they were ranked, uh, Wisconsin was ranked top 10, and then they lose both those games essentially on Hail Marys. And, yeah. th and then I remember seeing they're like ranked like 21st. I was like, well, clearly they're, they're much better than that. I just remember that being a whole thing. Um, and yes, I've been a big fan of Russell Wilson ever since then. So that's, that's been really interesting. So I did enjoy his, uh, his little run there he had in Seattle. He's Still great. great. 
little different now, obviously. Cap space isn't, isn't what it was, but uh, it's always interesting to see that. And then I actually have a friend. Um, my cousin actually is a Jaguars fan, and I hmm. make fun of him constantly because the Jaguars took a punter over Russell Wilson when I think Blaine <laughs> Gabbert was their starting quarterback. So I apologize for the digression there. But So you were writing and, and doing sports and, and statistics at Wisconsin. Did this, and, and you were doing more than just football, if I'm not mistaken. You were doing a lot of different sports, hockey, wrestling. I think there was a couple more in there. Yes. But did, did, so do you want to tell me a couple stories about that before I ask my uh, leading question, I guess? Yeah, definitely. So I believe that at any given semester, there were eight, eight interns in the sports information department. And our duties basically were, they put every single game of the week up on the board. And we had to sign up for like at least four of them. And you could sign up for 10. You just like didn't want to sign up for two and be like, why is this guy slacking off or whatever? But so my job was to go to, basketball games, football games, hockey games, whatever was going on that week and, and do the statistics for them because uh, oftentimes we were responsible for helping out um, in the booth if the Big Ten Network was covering it or just running official statistics for ESPN or just whoever needed our help. But as you got more responsible or more responsibilities um, and as the years went on, you were actually given smaller programs within uh, the athletic department to run the communications for. So um, I was given the men's track team. I was given the women's tennis team and I did wrestling, which was arguably the biggest program I did official communications for, um, for my junior and senior year. I, I would interview, I would interview the coaches and the players and get like official statistics, um, done for the university. So yes, um, I was involved with some very, some of the high level sports, but I was also literally in charge of running the communications and statistical data for many of the smaller programs on campus as well. And that, that I think is so cool, just having kind of that much power at 20, um, you know, just to have the ability to be able to do something like that. I mean, that looks incredible on a resume. But the question I was going to ask before I got that little, little extra bump from you is, with doing all this, did it kind of ruin sports for you, considering you kind of always, like, you, you couldn't watch to enjoy. Now you had to watch because it was your job at, at that point. Yeah, um, that was definitely a part, a part of it. I, I learned very early on that um, I'm not necessarily someone who says that you should do what you love for a living because it does little, or ruin little intricacies for it, to be honest with you. Um, every Saturday when my friends were getting ready to, to pregame and you know have fun with a football game, I was waking up and I was putting on a, a, a tie and I was walking and I was walking past tailgaters for 30 minutes, it seemed, on, on the way to work. So you know that part of it, I kind of lost fun in college. But then also once you kind of get into the nuances and, and what goes into actually a, a, a live sports production, you, it, it ruins it a little bit for you. Maybe you find out that one of your favorite players isn't so smart or a coach is doing some shady tactics. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there was constantly anything outlandish there, but there were definitely getting exposed to the behind the scenes nature of anything I feel um, can just sort of ruin some of the like raw fanhood for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally, um, I love sports. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I've continued to work in sports is because those int- those interests have already been kind of, you know, put on display for me. But other things I love, like music, for instance, I'm I would be too afraid to step into those bath- mm-hmm. into that realm because of what I've learned through working through some in something else that I love. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's keep everything kind of surface level. Um, you've already kind of dug a little too deep in sports, so you can still <laughs> love it. You can still work there. But yeah, there's some other things that you should probably keep surface level. And I think that that's interesting. Again, you know, you hear a lot about it with the in the journalism space. I've, I've interviewed many people from that space. And that's always the one of the questions I ask, because a lot of people do kind of lose the love for it. you know it's, it's one thing to sit on your couch on Sundays like me and, and drink beer and eat chicken wings with your friends and love every second of it it's another thing to have to be a hundred percent on and doing a job while everyone else and I think that's the other aspect it's not just that you're 
you're watching sports and you kind of have to watch it with a different eye. It's you also know everyone else is just sitting there enjoying and kind of just being washed over uh, while you're kind of sitting there. It's kind of that, that FOMO a little bit, I think, too. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is not uh, me discouraging people from working in sports if they want to. It's just go into it knowing that there would be certain things that you'll learn about the industry that you just can't get back as, as being a pure fan and just sitting on the sidelines, as you say, watching it. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, I'm not going to ask you about any of that stuff. We're going to leave it there. So that way you don't ruin my time or anyone else's um, if no we problem. ever do, whenever we do get sports back. So while at Wisconsin, so you did that, but you also had another couple internships, if I'm not mistaken. I, I listed off here at Dick Clark Productions. Um, originally, when you and I spoke, you forgot to tell me about this entire part of your story because this is how it led you into video. So if you don't mind, you, you then flew to LA for a couple summers, if I'm not mistaken, to learn about the video production side, correct? Yes, I spent uh, the summer after my sophomore and junior year in Los Angeles. I, I'm very fortunate to have multiple cousins who live in Los Angeles, which is where I am now. Um, and one of them did public relations or ran the public relations department, Dick Clark Productions. And for those that don't know it by the name, Dick Clark Productions does So You Think You Can Dance, New Year's Rock and Eve. Um, they have a bunch of really high level uh, per, uh, tel- live television productions and event, event productions. Um, American Music Awards is another really big one they do. So when I was there, I sort of learned the ins and outs of, of public relations, but I also had a stint um, working in uh, their video and business development department. And that's where I kind of learned how first to leverage. I mean, social media was, was first starting to really come onto the scene. So I worked for a really creative guy named uh, Ariel Elazer, and he was sort of the, the first people who put like Twitter on the red carpet of, of before like the American Music Awards or just sort of pioneered how you can leverage video and social media to sort of grow your brand. Um, and that's where I sort of picked up that, that level of knowledge about um, video and social media and, and, and also incorporating my love for analytics as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's sort of like, I guess you could say the beginnings of my, of my career in both sports and video. And I think it's funny how you said your, your sophomore and junior year, I remember when you and I first spoke again, like you took advantage of that time. A lot of people just go home and hang out with their high school friends or just go home and, you know, enjoy themselves, which isn't a bad thing, but you were able to take advantage of those two years. As you said, you learned a little bit and a lot about public relations. And then you learned a little bit and a lot about, you know, video analytics and, and social media and all that when it was kind of just starting to pop off. And obviously those two things, public relations and social media essentially go hand in hand at this point. Um, They're, they're essentially one and the same back then. I'm sure there was a little bit of a difference, but now there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of intertwining. So I think it's really important. And then this, by doing that, it it allowed you to then get your next job after graduating with Edelman, correct? I mean, having all that on your resume probably was a lot easier to get that position than if you didn't. Yeah, that's correct. Um, uh, so Edelman was my first job out of college. Um, I, I was very fortunate to move to Los Angeles and the next day I had an interview with Edelman and I got, got a job. Um, that, I don't So I, did, I, you, I, you, did you move to LA without a job then? I did. I, I had this, I had this interview scheduled and I, you know, I had cousins who were going to support me. Um, and and I, I lived with one of them, one of their guest houses for some time. And um, I had put feelers out, but Edelman was something that um, I actually leveraged my network uh, from Wisconsin. Um, I didn't know the person who got me the the, inter- the interview, but it was somebody who was a former journalism student at Wisconsin who was put in touch with me and then set it up. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I said in the interview at Edelman um, was I've always felt like if I could interpret a box score to the masses that I could, you know, be able to channel any any uh, level of analytics to be consumable by anyone. So my job at Edelman was I worked for Shell Oil and Activision Blizzard were my clients and I'd be doing 
every day I'd be doing different analytical reports about who's talking about them, what are they saying, um, what keywords are popping up, all this stuff. So I, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of crossover there between my, my, uh, my sports background as well as my video and analytics background. That, that Especially on, on the Activision Blizzard side, I'm sure, right? This was, I mean, esports has recently really just got huge, probably what, 2017, 18 timeframe with, uh, you know, um, uh, Fortnite really kind of bringing mm -hmm. it to the masses. But before then, I mean, Starcraft, I think is an Activision Blizzard. I think World of Warcraft is Activision Blizzard, correct? I mean, Activision that also sounds like Call of Duty. So, I mean, you're, you're working on some of these giant, you know, video games. Did you have anything to do with the esports side of it when you were there? Yeah, um, esports was not, uh, as you put it, not not so big then. So my two biggest things that I'm proud of saying I was a part of at Edelman were uh, Black Ops 2 was was launched while I was working mm -hmm. there. So I was responsible the night of uh, basically collating statistics about who's talking about the game. Uh, Edelman has these really, really, they pay a lot of money for these really, really cool analytics suites where you type in a word or a keyword and it spits out like everyone is talking about something on Twitter, Facebook, you name it. So I, I would be putting together reports about, oh, uh, you know, uh, this Manchester City soccer player talked about them. Like that's, mm -hmm. you know, basically providing coverage for the game. Um, and that's important because, you know, executives now more than ever, and back then we're just starting to learn that numbers are a really good way to tell, like, how successful is your game? Who's talking about it? And, and I think that was really at the forefront of deciding, you know, what's our ROI based on, like, digital engagement and conversation. Um, and then the other thing that I was proud of was I actually put together – the initial PR plan for uh, Destiny One. I oh was, wow! Uh, I was part of the team who who pitched Bungie on uh, how they should roll that out. So I didn't get to go see that through because I then eventually moved on to the job that I have now. But uh, I was a part of both those things before uh, I left there. That is super cool. Yeah. That is super cool. Yeah, way more interesting than an oil company. Um, I'll have to yeah. I have to say <laughs> that. I'm sure you had fun and you learned a lot there too. But way 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 more interesting than an oil company. So that is that is pretty Definitely. sweet. Also, I'm sure you saw Shell got. Um, hammered uh on their international women's day uh attempt i guess we'll call it we don't get too deep into that one but i'm sure that was well uh well on your radar uh to see what they were doing there so you did get this job at edelman you did some really cool stuff there what again with the analytics like how interpreting a box score is one thing but why do you think interpreting a box score allows you to be able to interpret other types of analytics and not just interpret it but allow people like myself who I'm sure, you know, the executives that you're talking to that don't know analytics that well, mm -hmm. like, why do you think you have that ability to kind of interpret and put it into terms that I or these people would understand? That, that's actually, that's a great question. And uh, that, that comes with a story of back when I worked at the University of Wisconsin, they, we would print out what we wrote and then hand it to the, like someone above us and they would mark in red pen all over it, how it was. And, and for probably the first month or so that I worked there, all, everything I got was you need to dumb it down. Like you're just, you're trying to write, your sentences are too long. You're trying to write, you're trying to be a little too like poetic maybe in the way that you're describing it. So one thing that I, I really honed and was taught at the University of Wisconsin was how to make things understandable to the masses, but also just sort of like to quickly summarize things, which was important. Um, and uh, that's just a lesson that I'll, I'll always take over because I, I always thought, you know, to me, journalism was sort of this like long form, you're trying to really tell this like elaborate story of how a game happened. But at least when you're writing for the university itself, because that's why I wasn't writing for a newspaper, I was writing for the University of Wisconsin, they wanted to be as uh, legible as it could be for whoever might have been reading it. Then. Um, so that's why I say, if you can interpret a box score, you can make 
knew anybody from, you know, a kid to, to, uh, you know, an elderly adult understand it, then that's a, that's a good skill that I've carried over into um, the rest of my career. Yeah. And I think it is very important. I did want to make sure we got to that because um, I have it written down here in my paper, which means it was when I wrote this paper earlier this morning, when I was getting everything going, it meant something to me at seven thirty, And now mm. a couple hours later, I'm, I'm glad I did ask it because I do think Great. it is very important. And then with, um, with getting the role you had now, you kind of, you, you got it when you were still at Edelman, right? I have a, a couple of things written down here, but I'm sure you can just tell us the story with, with, um, find you know there's the higher up that really liked what you were able to do and you said it kind of i think moonlighting was the word you used when we first mm-hmm. originally spoke so if you don't mind telling me that story too right so the the former ceo of the post game david katz um i believe he did either an adjunct professorship or just decided to to show up for a course um at usc and one of my colleagues um had heard david mention that he was looking for some, you know s- smart young people who were into video and analytics and uh basically my colleague suggested me to David. Um, At that time, I was transitioning from the Shell team to the Activision team, so I was enjoying my job a little bit more, but um, uh, was really eager to to sort of get back into sports. So as as you said, I I did Moonlight for David. Um, His first task was um, YouTube gave him the opportunity to run a multi-channel network, um, which uh, at the time was a brand new concept. A multi-channel network is basically an overseeing body of tens if not thousands of YouTube channels um, that they help them grow their channel bring them brand deals and um, so basically my task from David was to figure out if there were enough sports channels on YouTube to make a sports specific multi-channel network um, I worked with him uh, basically I think I think for about a month uh, a night after my job and then eventually once he was happy with my work he said I'd like to offer you a job at the post game you can work from home technically run your own part of the business and I was like that sounds great. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. That's yeah. awesome, man. And isn't it funny? Like kind of, you said the words, but I started laughing a little bit. Like, are there enough channels on YouTube to make a sports specific multi-channel network? It's just funny because that really shows us like back in what 2000 and what was this? 2012 ish, 2010 ish, somewhere around there that that was a legitimate question. Now, obviously it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an obvious yes at this point. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the person to do this, but there's definitely a book to be written about the history of social analytics. Um, at the time I, you know, I was, I, at the time I was doing my own research, just kind of like typing in the YouTube search bar with certain parameters to figure out if anyone fit the criteria. But we actually worked with this company called tubular labs. Um, I think we were probably one of their like first like 10 or 20 clients. And they, they basically spit out this giant spreadsheet about every YouTube channel that met these certain parameters or whatever. And now tubular labs is the industry standard for, social analytics, um, particularly on YouTube, but anything involving video. And like, it's just kind of amazing to see how far everything's come and what we were able to do. This was back in 2012, 13, um, and, and how, kind of how it's come full circle now. Sounds like you should write that book. I mean, you've been there since <laughs> practically the beginning. I mean, why not you, man? Don't yeah. don't let anyone, I'll, I'll hold off on this episode until you start writing that book. Cause that's okay. Like- Sounds good. Uh, But no, man, I I just think it's so interesting. And again, so so explain the multi-channel network a little bit more and kind of exactly what you guys did, because I think it's a really interesting concept. And if I'm not mistaken, they don't really exist too, too much anymore, at least not in the way that they did back in 2012 when you were doing this. That's right. So the original purpose of the multi-channel network was YouTube looked out into their ecosystem and thought, we have so many great channels, everything's growing so quickly, but there's no way for us to disseminate the information that we have on updates and new features quickly or efficiently, as well as we want to give companies who feel like they have a leg up in maybe the digital space to uh, provide content um, 
uh, advice as well as maybe offer brand deals to these companies. So uh, the multi-channel network was was formed so that you could basically have like an umbrella of, of channels underneath you. So when we started, we were looking for sports channels as general as possible. I had car racing channels in an independent wrestling league that I still work with. Hakeem Olajuwon was part of our network. Um, awesome. And, and still is. He doesn't post content anymore, but he would post videos of him training with Dwight Howard and Kobe Bryant. So my job was to consult his manager about what we should be putting up, the schedule, you know, potentially getting brand deals around that, maybe engaging Hakeem to do something. So we, we built this network within a couple of months that got 50 million views a month on, on YouTube. And it was something that I was very proud of because, um, it, that wasn't a lot back then, <laughs> or that was a lot back then. Excuse yeah, me, it's yeah. not. It's not. It's not all that much anymore. But um, as to your point, that MCNs don't exist so much anymore. So there's some very big MCNs called Full Screen uh, Maker, and they've been bought up by the likes of AOL and AT and T in the last uh, three or four years. And um, it was hard for an MCN like ours, a, a small niche MCN, to exist because these companies have so much money behind them that they could offer signing bonuses and. Usually the way that we do it is a revenue split. It's like, hey, I'm, we're offering you this content advice and we're, you're going to grow because of what we're, we're giving you. So let's do 75, 25, something like that. Um, so we kind of got, so smaller MCNs kind of got pushed out of the market. Um, and now uh, YouTube has actually been rolling out more direct to, con, to more direct to creator help. But um, I can tell you confidently that everyone who's still in our MCN is really help, thankful for the specific work that I do because I get YouTube certified in production audience growth every year I'm sort of maintaining my YouTube expertise through Google certifications that they offer. Um, that was kind of a long-winded answer, but that's no, 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 that's perfect. Cause again, like it's not something that really, you know, as you said, these, these companies like AOL and, and Yahoo are kind of buying up these MCNs, So they don't really exist in their truest form as they did eight, nine years ago when you started right. really diving into that space, which I think is really interesting. And, and we kind of, I wanted to know that part of it, because I know now what you're doing at the post game, while you are still engaged with, you know, helping these content creators, you're doing a lot more there now. So um, I also want to just take a pause for a second. So you got your, your job, um, you utilize your dad and his network to get one of your first positions. You utilize mm -hmm. um, someone that you didn't know, but through the same journalism school that was a student where you were to get another one of your positions, you showed somebody at your then then position, what you were capable of and how good you were, especially only a month into something that no one really knew how they worked. So I think mm -hmm. that's obviously a, a um, measure of your expertise. And again, when it comes to analytics, and now we get to what you're doing. So again, thank you for explaining what MCMs are. Tell us what the post game is now, because I do want to kind of get to the iterations. But what are you doing now at the post game compared to, I guess, what you were doing then? Absolutely. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, what we're we doing now starts with a little explanation of what we were. When, when I joined the post game, uh, Yahoo Sports was our biggest partner and Yahoo, we were a publisher exclusively. So Yahoo would send 15 million views a month uh, to articles that they would post of ours on their homepage. And uh, about two years into me working at the post game and running the MCN, our main revenue factor of, uh, of Yahoo sending us traffic went away. Yahoo decided to sort of disbar from their third party partners. And uh, David Katz, our, our CEO, who I mentioned, was just, he's just a really smart guy, and he decided to pivot towards video. So the post game started doing branded content, uh, which is so common now. But back then, at least in the sports world, it wasn't. Um, we, we, would, we would reach out to brands like, uh, you know, a KFC or a Hyundai, and we'd be like, you know, we're going to do a 10-episode, 20-episode series with, you know, something that you're really passionate about, like loyalty or, uh, you know, tailgating. And we're going to do branded content around that. And uh, we just sort of positioned ourselves in the space to be, you know, 
in the sports space specifically, because the post game does stick strictly to sports to being the branded content arm and the digital solutions for, for companies. So that was the start of it. And then over time, uh, we've sort of transitioned. We now have a, a new CEO, uh, Eric Hurd, um, who started uh, as our CEO about a year and a half ago. He was formerly our VP of, of sales. Um, and we have transitioned from being a branded content arm to basically being a full-on agency. Um, no matter if you're a sports league, sports brand, I mean, some of our partners are the NBA. We work with teams like the New York Knicks, uh, the New York Jets. Uh, you know, uh, we, have, we have amateur golf tournaments, who, you know, tons of partners in various different areas of, of, of sports. But now we offer social media consulting. We still do production. Uh, we can do distribution. So we've sort of like created our company to offer whatever you need in the digital space in sports, we can help you. And I'm very fortunate to say that, you know, throughout this uh, pandemic that we're dealing with, we're actually really well positioned to help all of our partners. Um, we have one partner in particular called Thuzio that is a live events themed company where they have um, very famous athletes come and speak to executive groups um, about adversity and motivation. And we're helping them right now become digital. And I'm, I'm, I'm making their YouTube channel as tight as it possibly can be. We've been offering a new, or, you know, we're, we're launching a new Zoom product with them. So, um, you know, if, we, if you're a sports company who, who's looking to get in digital or maybe um, doesn't quite know how to do it, the post game offers really great solutions for it. And my role is I'm just kind of a team player. Uh, whatever, whatever we need, if it's research, if it's analytics, uh, sometimes I do, I do production in per person. Um, I've just sort of found my way into whatever, whatever, we, whatever the company needs, I'm, I'm there to help with. Jack of all, master of all trades. Actually, I'll stick. I try with that. to. We're a really, we're a really lean company. Um, you know, so we have we have uh, just over fifteen, uh, fifteen. I think we have just over fifteen uh, employees, and uh, it, there were times where I think there were eight or nine of us, and I've just kind of always tried to figure out where I can help um, the company, and it's been and really that, great. That's what you got to do, man. Especially because you've been there for so essentially the beginning, if I'm not mistaken. You've Pretty been much my whole from, career. Yeah, just Edelman like, was six months. I didn't work here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the gentleman from Edelman, right, was the guy who hired you here when he created the company. So essentially, you've been at the postgame since its inception. Yeah. Um, and you've really been able to see as you, you really detailed the way and the, the, the timeline of what you and, and the company have been able to do. I think that's really important to see again, how you've been able to pivot multiple times now. First, you were just an MCM and then you guys help with branded content. And now you're an agency. And along the way, there was those little pivots and those little ideas that I think really helped push your company to where it is. And as you said, now, you know, even though it is unfortunate for a lot of people, you guys are still really well, um, you know, well suited to kind of push even these live events into the digital space because you know so much about it. It's not quite a flip of the switch, but it's a, it's a very easy task for you and your team to, to tackle. And I think that that part's really important. And yes, you do have some pretty cool people over at the post game. Thankfully, gentlemen, put us in contact, Ryan Delaney, go check out his episode. It's a couple back. Uh, he was awesome to get to talk to and really how he got the job there. And I think it's really cool hearing your story as well, because you both ended up essentially in the same pit split, the same company, um, different spaces within the company and different sides of the country, which I think is pretty cool too, which yeah. allows you to understand, uh, you know, the people that work there. But, you know, I just think it's really cool. Just the culture, um, that, you know, the company has been able to develop over time, over the, you know, six or seven years, however long you've been there. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, it's a really weird time we're living in. So let's kind of, I guess, push that aside right now. Let's, let's assume the world's back on its axis. You personally, as you said, you've been YouTube certified, you've been keeping everything up. 
YouTube specifically, you know, whenever I talk to YouTubers or content creators that, that really focus on YouTube, it's the monetization that everyone's kind of like, it's like this like boogeyman that they're just waiting for them to kind of sneak up on them. And you've seen over the last seven years, I'm sure it was a lot different when you guys were getting 50 million views in 2012 than 50 million views now. So how have you been able to kind of deflect and not worry so much about that, you know, YouTube ad revenue and the monetization of the videos and really just stick to the core principles of we know this is going to work whether we get a million or a billion dollars from it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question as well. Um, <laughs> analytics are just, they're really important. Um, and actually last week I, I made, I had a YouTube, I did an hour long presentation for my whole company at the post game about what analytics I'm using to help my partners grow. And then how can we use them for our own partners or, or to grow our own channel? And I won't get into all the minutia of it, but you can, uh, I'm sure people want to listen. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really interesting. So I, I, so I'll mention a partner by name. So one of my, one of the companies that I work with is called beyond wrestling and beyond wrestling is an independent wrestling league out of uh, Delaware. And when I started working with them five years ago, they had 10,000 subscribers and they now have 2.2 million subscribers. Um, I won't take credit for nearly most of it, but, but I've been there along the way offering my expertise and, and guidance. But um, it's funny that when they, when they went from 500,000 subscribers to 1.5 million, the revenue, almost none of the revenue changed. And that's because most of their viewership is from India and the CPMs that you get um, CPMs are basically the cost per, per view are about a, a 20th of the, the size of the United States view. So it's really hard to make money over there. So what we, what, what I'm able to do though is, is, okay, so if we know that we can make money off of the United States audience, what analytics can I refer to within the United States to then start making content for those specific audiences? So uh, with their with them specifically, there are literally analytics that if you look at you know a, a, usually look at the last ninety days of videos, you can see okay this worked, this didn't. You should make this video longer. Try this and and um, yeah, there's there's a lot of information out there, but um, that's something that you can do. And the, and and then you know another partner that I, I have this other crazy partner. I call him crazy because he uploads over fifty videos a day to YouTube. I don't think anyone else does that on the entire platform. His name's ES News. Ellie Sackback. He's a boxing reporter. And his strategy is he goes out and he interviews literally anyone he possibly can about boxing. Um, and uh, he doesn't have a great title strategy or thumbnail strategy because it's just uploaded as quickly as possible. But there are analytics that tell me who's, what are people searching to find his channel. And then I can recommend, and then we can look, take a look at those together and be like, oh, well, people are looking for Manny Pacquiao. So you should be maybe doing more content about him. Or it turns out Robert Garcia was really you know popular in April. So maybe you should look into why. So there's lots of different analytics you can look to that maybe they don't relate directly to uh money but it's sort of telling you like this is what your audience is coming here for this is what they they already want and um you know it's it's a it's a really untouched resource a lot of people uh haven't used and i've sort of been deep in my whole career so it, it's just so interesting to me kind of how you know youtube is such an uh, it's a i feel like it's just such a different platform than all the other social medias i mean youtube is like part social media part news part like search engine at this point like you can mm -hmm. pretty much like if you're looking to do something like how to like the first place literally youtube it right like it became a verb and i think once something becomes a verb it's very very powerful um you know google it youtube it thankfully same company owns both of those i guess so that helps but it's just so interesting to me how how you're how people are capable of just gaining plat gaining followers but subscribership can you describe like 
subscribership on YouTube is just such a weird concept to me because so many people you'll, you'll get, you know, five times, 10 times the amount of views than you have subscribers and people don't like to subscribe to things. Can you just give us some insight on that? Because it's just such a weird concept to me because to get a hundred subscribers and I've been, again, been told by this, uh, you know, a few different times now, those first hundred are the hardest. Those, that first thousand is the hardest thousand. And then after that, it weirdly gets easier. Like, I don't know if you have any analytics or information on that, but it's just such a weird concept to me. Yeah, YouTube doesn't get into the specifics of, specifics of their algorithm, but it's, it's, it's more like a thousand, the most difficult to get. Uh, once, you, once you reach a thousand subscribers and a certain amount of watch time, a lot of people don't know this if they're not on the back end, but it's actually views are not the most important number on YouTube, but watch time is. So if you're able to get somebody to watch a, 20 minute, a whole 20 minute video, it's way better than if they watch a whole five minute video. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, because uh, that's what's contributing to the algorithm overall. Um, as far as subscribers go, um, when your channel is optimized, most of your viewership will be coming from suggested videos. So those are the ones that are popping up after you watch another one, or maybe you're on your homepage and showing up there. Um, whereas a non-optimized channel, most of their views are going to be coming from search. And if they're coming from search, that means that people probably aren't subscribing to you. Um, they're less likely to, put, to pop up on your channel. Um, again, there's a lot of different details to get into here. Um, but uh, having a big subscribership is great because they basically get alerted when you upload a YouTube video. That's sort of the, the idea there is a subscriber is somebody who's, who's identified, okay, I like this content. They're making it regularly enough. I want to be alerted whenever something comes up. And one of the most high level common sense things that I can recommend to a YouTube partner, you'd be surprised how many of them don't do it is make a schedule because when people can expect for your podcast to come out every, every Thursday or for this video to come out every Monday, then they can eagerly wait and be like, Oh great. It's Monday. I can watch their content. Um, and that's, that's really what subscribership comes from. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if how, how I have never looked at analytics on podcasts, but I'd be curious how many people subscribe to certain podcasts and what you can sort of learn from when people are, when are they, are they listening right when it comes out? Are they listening a couple of days after? I mean, if you want, I'd love to take a look at your analytics if you have any and sort of see what I could learn from it. But You are more than welcome. Only if you help me along in the process. That's all sure I thing. ask back. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, and then I guess with that, so we've been talking a lot about YouTube. Are there other, so I, know, I mean, video itself, you know, YouTube obviously was kind of the pioneer to essentially social media kind of before everything else. I mean, before Twitter became, you know, Twitter, I'd call it like 3.0 at this point where it's just the worst and the best place all at the same time. (laughs) Um, Instagram obviously started with pictures and they're like, oh shoot, people want video. So let's pivot to that. So now they added that in. Now we have weird places like TikTok, which I just refuse to get into because it's too confusing and I don't care. Um, So like when you, you, you know, and understand all these analytics to YouTube, do you dabble in any of the other platforms as well? And just kind of like keep abreast of what's kind of what's going on around the, you know, the social media landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the most important things for somebody who's creating content to understand is that each platform has its own strengths and weaknesses and also preferred content. Um, And also the algorithms are changing constantly. So I mean, even just two years ago, I was recommending to a lot of my, my sports partners on YouTube to be making videos that are a minute and a half, two minutes, really eat quick snackable. That was like, that was the trend. Um, and now YouTube says, don't make a video under five minutes and don't make it over 15 unless you know people are going to watch it. Um, so there are specific videos that you do for different platforms. You know, Instagram specifically likes to keep things to 60 seconds. Um, Twitter is a platform where you can be uploading more frequently and people aren't bothered by the uploads. Whereas if you're uploading on YouTube all the time, it can, it can be a lot and it can actually hurt, hurt the algorithm that people aren't consuming it. So 
yes, uh, myself as well as many other uh, you know people who work at the post game are definitely tapped into all the various social platforms. Um, you know, I, I can't go without saying too is unfortunately you have to you have to buy viewership on a lot of them too if you really want to help a partner. I mean, you know, good content rises at the top, but if you know if you're working for somebody who's expecting a million views on something, you want to be very clear with them. Be like you know, we expect to have a, you know, have a certain budget to be able to hit this mark. We definitely can do it, but you're gonna have to put money behind it because that's just the way that Facebook and Twitter have sort of like gated how well content can perform. Um, obviously YouTube is a little different because YouTube, like you said, it's more of a search engine. And I think that plays into why videos can go viral so much easier on, on that platform than other ones. But uh, you can you can buy views on, on YouTube as well. So. Uh, not something that we always recommend, but if, if you're a big client, we have lots of them who are expecting a certain number of views or there's somebody along the way who thinks it's important if you get, you know, a couple thousand eyeballs on something, then that's sort of a necessary evil of uh, of the space. I know you didn't ask me that, mm -hmm. but I just thought that was worth no, mentioning. No, it's cool. All the, all the information you have is more than I have. So the more you can give to me, the happier I will be. And hopefully the people listening will enjoy that too, because it's such a interesting concept because we've all used youtube right like i've been using it since it pretty much came out i remember like freshman year of high school and uh it was like pretty common at that point so this is 2008 2006 7 somewhere around there and i remember you know my friend's older sister she was a senior at the time and we were like oh just like go to youtube and she's like what are you talking about it's <laughs> like just just go to youtube and like you can search it and she had no idea and it was just such a foreign concept to me because i was already using it so much by you know, this is now 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. It's just crazy how much YouTube I've used. And I've used it more and more as time goes on with more shows and more opportunities. I mean, just, you know, some people like myself, you just upload the video of it. As long as the video of a podcast is good, you just kind of put it on there too. Because people listen to podcasts, weirdly enough, on YouTube, even with no yeah. video. It's just a very, very confusing concept to me. I don't totally. know why anyone wastes their time doing that or their phone battery, but it is what it is. Maybe you have some information there that you can tell us, but with, um, with this, I mean, you know, so much about this platform. Do you, you create content now currently for the post game, correct? And your, yeah, that, your partners as well. Tell us a little bit about what you do on that side. Sure. Uh, you mean for the, for the post game? Yeah, correct. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, so, uh, the post game now, like I said, we're, we're an agency. So when we are out in the field creating content, um, well, something that we've done over the years is build relationships with agents of, of athletes, uh, PR people, and we will go out and we will film videos with these athletes. Um, something that's unique about the post game that I haven't brought up yet is we don't actually care. Maybe that's not the right way to phrase it. The post game is not focused on the game itself or these results or statistics like I was at Wisconsin, where I was literally just reporting on what happened. We're actually more interested in the stories around the game, the people involved themselves. So. Um, I am involved in, in pre-production uh, as, as far as researching who these people are that we should be interviewing. Um, I sometimes am in the field, you know, asking the questions directly to the athletes or the people involved. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, just in general, I'm, I'm involved with in, in all of those aspects of it. Obviously looking at the analytics afterwards to see if it worked is, is really an important aspect. And then as far as my YouTube partners go, I talk to them at least once a week about what they're doing, what's coming up and sort of give them my advice. And the best partners that I have listen to everything that I say and they do it. And some people it's their second job or their third job and they don't really have the time to do it. But you know, it's, it's always good to, to speak to somebody who's, who's so deep involved in these platforms. Um, and just to go back to one of your earlier questions, every year on YouTube, I still continue to gain certifications and learn about how to, make better content. But in the last year on Facebook and Twitter, I've just been learning about how to sell. 
So I, I don't know I don't know what it is about that platform that's moving towards that direction, but I've been developing my skills on the paid social side of Facebook and Twitter, but on YouTube I'm I'm, I'm still just learning how do you make the best content on, on that platform. That's really interesting. What drove you to learn that on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, um, it, was, it was a need of our company. Just like I said earlier, I'm, I, I try to make myself as useful as possible. So we've had a number of really big clients um, who, are, who are brands that maybe we want, wanted to, I mean, so a lot of times we do content around the NFL draft where we will interview, you know, five perspective, you know, first round, second round picks. We'll do a whole series about, um, you know, their life and what led them to this point and who they are. And like, it's really, it's really great content. I mean, that's what brand, brand content basically is like, how do we get, how does a brand get their name on something that's already something people want to consume? And that's sort mm-hmm. of like what we do in the, in the interim. So we create the content. I'm involved with the interviewing process of, in the production of it. But then there's also the, I'm Hyundai and I want 5 million people to see this before the draft happens, or this person got drafted by the bills. So we want to make sure the bills audience sees this content basically. Right. So when you're talking about hyper targeting, you can rely on some organic, you know, you can rely, rely on some organic views from it, but really it's, it's getting into the Twitter and Facebook targeting tools and the paid social that's going to get the audience that you want to see it. So that's why I've developed that skill in the last uh, year or two. And that makes sense. I mean, if it helps your partners, if it helps your company become more successful, as you said, you're going to have to pay at some point for views. That's just how it works. I mean, this isn't, you know, BuzzFeed and, and uh, you know, remember Huffington Post. I haven't seen either of them. The only reason I know of BuzzFeed now is because they have an awesome app that helps me cook food every night. Other than that, <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen a BuzzFeed article in ages. And I remember, you know, I think this is around 2010-ish when BuzzFeed and Huffington Post really popped off because Facebook said, okay, you guys want to see what we're capable of? And then they just let everybody see their stuff and then they kind of throttled it way way back so now buzzfeed has to pay to get in front of all the people that before it was organic and please correct me if i'm wrong i read a few articles along the way but um, you're right yeah you're right cool thanks appreciate it justin you're the (laughs) analytic guy so but it's just interesting how you know as you said you're gonna have to pay at some point for a lot of these views and getting everything you know if you want something you'll get so much and these platforms will then pretty much just cut you off at some point. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, or organically at least, or at least show it to less and less people. So you're going to have to start paying for that. And if you, the expert at, you know, these platforms and getting people to understand and the analytics behind it, if you're capable of getting that in front of more and more people, your audiences, your, your company, the post game is going to be happier. Your partners are going to be much happier. And then as you said, the sales aspect should be able to come with that too. And if you're selling for the company that's paying you, they're going to be much, much happier. Exactly. And, and, you know, a really fun part of this job and it always has been, has been the education of our partners. Um, we, we, we've been, I'll give an example. We've been working with the PGA merchandise show for, for several years. I think about four or five years. And we do a lot of the marketing video materials for the show itself, but also a lot of the, the big golf brands that are there. And when we first started working with them, we just did production. And we'd say, here's a video. You should probably show it at the show and post it on your Facebook. But now, as it, the education part comes in is you need to, now we're educating partners. You need to have a budget for the production, but you should also have a budget for the distribution aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just sort of educating these different sports brands who aren't really used to non-traditional media, uh, the internet, so to speak, um, as to how to get their content out there to both make great content, but also get the eyeballs on it that you desire. And then do you look into analytics from other pieces of their business? Understanding video, I mean, TV is vi- the original video, right? Or movies are the, you know, so do you, do you look at like, 
Okay, here's product placement. If you ever watched Jurassic World, I think there was like an insane amount of product placement. It's awful. Um, but do you ever look at any of these partners that do things like product placement in movies or or commercials and just kind of just kind of consult? I don't know for free maybe or just as as a as a partner and understanding like, hey, maybe maybe if we didn't put all these millions of dollars into TV and we took a couple of those and put them over here, this is the difference and this is how much I could help you. Do you guys do anything like that or you personally? Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never, I've never specifically looked into, you know, the, a movie product placement, but the last part of what you said is, I mean, we do that every day and it's, it's actually probably the biggest struggle of the job is convincing people who are or brands who are so used to doing media one way, but in fact, like you could get millions of views over here and you're not even mm-hmm. thinking about it. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing that's really interesting is like that Beyond Wrestling partner that I mentioned, they get 27 million views a month on their channel. And I said, most of them are from India. But if think about that audience, like you can't get that audience in, in a lot of different places. If, the, if that was a United States audience, I, I would be hammering <laughs> every wrestling brand in, in, in the United States that you need to be, you need to be covering it. Um, so, you know, to, to answer your question, I guess somewhat indirectly, it's something that we try to do is, uh, you know, there are a lot of brands who just don't quite understand social media and our role. And there are lots of others out there. We're not the only people doing that is to sort of explain there's an audience here. They want your content. They, they want to engage with you here. And, and yeah, maybe your money would be better spent somewhere else. I love it. I love it, man. And then what about you? I mean, you know so much about YouTube. How are, are you YouTube famous? And I just don't know about it yet. No, I, I'm not a content creator myself. I, I, uh, I have a little trouble with m- putting my own face on to a camera. Um, I have, although made my dog famous on Instagram. So you have, uh, yes. I did have that written down. We were going to talk about that. Tell us about your Instagram famous dog, please. Yeah, so, so my, my dog is uh, Harlan the Corgi on Instagram. It's H-A-R-L-A-N the Corgi. Um, like I said, I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't really seek fame or I, I, let's, I'll rephrase this actually. I would like to be well known maybe for like my intelligence or like my interests, but in terms of like who I am and like getting on a camera and being like, Hey guys, this is like me, not, it's not for me. I really like what you do on the podcast too. I like, I think engaging people and finding out what, what they're passionate about is another really interesting way that maybe I'd enjoy getting followers, but I got a really cute puppy, uh, in 2015 and I wanted a Corgi my entire life. So I had been following Corgi accounts and was kind of like just sort of paying attention to what was going on there. And I didn't know he was going to be famous, but, um, he's really cute. I would post three to five times a day for the first year that I had him, which is pretty outrageous, um, posting schedule. But I got 50 million, sorry, 50,000 followers in four months for my dog. And he peaked a while ago because he's an adult dog now and he's not nearly as cute as when he's a puppy, but he still has 55,000 followers. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, you asked me earlier, my, do I have expertise in other platforms? I'm not certified on Instagram, but when I first started, there was no analytics suite on Instagram. So I just run my own analytics. Um, like I said, I would post three to five times a day and I would just sort of track when are people commenting the most, when am I getting the most traction? I literally figured out, okay, these are three times I should be posting every day. So, you know, most platforms have the develop analytics system, but there's a little bit of trial and error that I think everybody needs to, you know, give a shot on any platform. And a lot of my YouTube partners, I'll say, if you like, if you like doing something, try it. And if it doesn't get the viewership right away, keep it up and people might even get used to it. So, um, yeah. So yes, I, I'm, I'm no, I'm nobody special. My dog is pretty special, but your dog is pretty darn special. And I think you should be posting more content, man, because you have such a wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I love the Gary Vee model of give all your information away for free because no one's going to really want to do it and they're just going to pay you to do it. But now they just know that you know exactly what you're talking about. And there's so many like whiteboard videos and stuff, you know, I, 
you got a great face, man. You got a face for TV, but I understand. And if you don't want to put that out there, uh, you know, I respect everybody's privacy, of course, and just understanding that, you know, I think you know how all this, the back end. I mean, you got your dog to 50,000 followers. Like, why aren't you just going to like local restaurants and, you know, dog? You're actually, could you He's tell me about the, the, I was just about to ask, <laughs> please tell us about your dog's manager. Cause I was told, did you watch that documentary? I told you about the cat one. I did. That was great. Okay. Yeah, I was Yo, excited okay, to talk cool. to you about it. <laughs> yes. Awesome. If anyone out there is listening and you haven't already, it's on Netflix. It's called Cats the Meowvi, uh, M-E-O-V-I-E, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and it's just yeah. about famous cats and uh, their their Instagram fame and their, their chase for fame. So I'm glad you watched that. I think it's funny. But yeah, please, before we get off your dog, we'll go back to you in a second. But tell, what's your dog's manager like? What's that relationship like? Do you guys laugh about like just how ridiculous it is? Like I have to <laughs> Um, I laugh at it, but I, I'll, I'll start with how I, my, Harlan is on his, uh, second manager. So I'll tell you how I got it. Oh, first. No. Um, I went to a, a panel at, at a, at a member's club that I belonged to that was about social media. And there were three people up on stage who were either influencers themselves or had like, or like photographers. They were just sort of involved in the Instagram space and they're talking about their engagement and they're showing some of their content examples. And honestly, I think that their content was great. But I was looking at their numbers and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, my dog's more famous and has better engagement than all these people combined times like five. So at the end of the whole presentation, I was like, so I raised my hand. I was like, so uh, what would you say your rate if you're getting, you know, 5,000 likes per, per post or whatever. And like, all I can tell you is like everyone on stage, their jaws dropped. And then probably like 10 different people came up to me afterwards and were like, I want to work with your dog. That's unbelievable. You're doing this. <laughs> so one person that I met at that panel decided to be his manager for a little bit, um, I th- he made it a couple promises he couldn't keep because they actually ended up disbanding the part of the company that was doing social media influencing. But the management company that uh, I work with now is is the premier pet agency. They're called the Dog Agency, TDA for short. And uh, I read about uh, the owner of the company or founder of the company, uh, Lonnie, in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, she's a really bright lady who had an influencer pet of her own who unfortunately passed away last year. Um, but they basically offer um, you know, management solutions. And what I mean by that is they, they just help you make money off your pets. They don't offer any social media consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when, when my dog Harlan first started getting famous, I was bombarded by brands that wanted to work with me. And I just like, I wanted to sort of separate him being my dog from making money off him. So, so I decided to, you know, go with this agency or this management company. I was like, I'll take the pictures, but you can handle the contracts and I'll give you 20%. And it might sound like a lot, but honestly, to be able to like, again, put a, a wall between like making money off my dog and him being a business and just wanted to enjoy him. That's sort of how I fell into having him be managed. And, and it used to, yeah. And I'm sure a lot of that money goes back to him in many, many different ways. I'm sure he has the he's best, the, Absolutely. The, exactly the best food. He's got the best bed. Like shout out to him. Harlan is, is very well treated. I think that's funny. So yeah, I had that as my last point, but I'm glad we touched upon that for a second. And um, going back to you, um, Again, I laugh at the fact that you have a uh, management manager for your dog. I'm, I'm a little I jealous. I'm not going to lie. Like, no, I wish I, I had one, but uh, <laughs> I think it's great. And I, I, so with all of this knowledge and all this information, how f- do you get just frustrated that these algorithms just change constantly and now you kind of have to learn something new? Or it, to me, it sounds like that's probably something fun and exciting. You kind of get bored with the current algorithm. You're like, I can't wait for it to change so I can figure that one out now. Yeah, that's actually really funny. I, I do I do enjoy it. Um, it's, it's my partners who are always constantly upset about it. They're, they're always like, what's going on? Why do they change it? Like, yeah. and, and it's funny because YouTube, because of um, 
YouTube in particular has been changing a lot recently because they're trying to make advertisers, uh, you know, more, more, more safe and, and, and have the content that they're showing their ads on be better. A lot of advertisers last year were pulling out because of some of their videos that were being shown. They've had issues with, um, I, I work with a channel that has minors on their channel and they've had issues with, you know, unfortunately creepy people in their comments. So YouTube is constantly changing their algorithms and trying to make it safer for both their content creators, but also the people that are trying to make money off of YouTube. So it's really, it's really frustrating when all you want to do is create content and keep your audience, but they're changing, you know, certain rules on YouTube for things that you just like have no control over or really don't affect your business at all. So mm-hmm. um, I find it interesting, but yeah, partners are constantly complaining on a regular basis about what to do and uh, how to approach things. I can see that being frustrating. And then I guess the, the, one of the last questions going back is just with the, the analytics and everything, like how, how are you learning like, how did you learn all of this? Like, again, you, you, you were, you had the capabilities to create your own analytics for Instagram to get your dog famous. And now your dog is famous and probably gets paid more money than I do. Um, mm-hmm. Like, like how, <laughs> how, like with, with all this, like, it's obviously like, like the thirst for knowledge we spoke about a little bit and obviously analytics and statistics has always been in your background, but how do you, like, how would someone like myself sit down to be like, all right, I just want to get five subscribers on YouTube. I just want a hundred subscribers. How could someone like a normal person like me that kind of hates analytics, just be able to learn enough to be able to start taking advantage of the knowledge that I find? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So if we're talking about YouTube specifically, I would say that some, you want to pick up on a key, some key analytics. Uh, first one would probably be um, audience retention rate. So there's a, there's a really key analytic on YouTube that says what, per, what percent of your video are people watching? And if you, if you made a, if, let's say you post this podcast on online and it was an hour and people watch it for five minutes. Well, that your, your, your audience per, per retention percentage is going to be super low. And that's telling you, well, people might be curious and learning, but either the podcast didn't start off exciting enough and they left, or you, they might be geared towards making you want, they might want shorter content. So there's, there's different analytics in there that you can sort of look, look on there. Um, but Honestly, if, if, if I'm giving the advice to somebody who just wants to start right now, I would say don't even look at your analytics for probably a couple of months because one video, two videos, three videos, isn't good. it's really once you get a groove that you want to be referring to analytics. That's why whenever I'm giving analytics reports to certain partners of mine, I always go 90 days out because that's a good sample of your old content. What's surfing interesting from your old content? That's at least three months of new videos that you've been posting. So I can, I could, I could give you specific analytic examples, but I, I would say you got to give it time. If you're, if you're just starting, you definitely want to give it at least three months before you really start referring to analytics and decide making decisions based off of um, what you're seeing there. I love that. And then, and then with the content aspect of it, one thing, the reason why I like this long form storytelling content where I just kind of ask questions and we have a conversation is because that's the content I listen to. And that's the kind of content I enjoy. And I, I'm a listener of Tim Ferriss occasionally. Sometimes the stuff is a little too heady for me. But, you know, he had one thing that really hit me. And it was like, if you can monetize, if you can get 100,000 people to like what you do, you can be successful. You know, you can monetize 100,000 people, you know, 18 different ways, as long as you're giving them the value that they deserve. And you're not kind of, you know, swindling them or being a snake oil salesman. And these 100,000 people believe and love what you do. 100,000 when you divide it by 350 million, you know, the, the, the population in the United States is very, very small. So just understanding that aspect of it, as you said, like, how, how do you kind of consult with partners? And again, you could be specific, you can be kind of, you know, wishy-washy depending on, you know, how you want to answer the question, but how can you, you know, get them to make content that 
people want to watch, but also is very true to them and who they are because I like this. I'm not going to change the way I do podcasts because Mm -hmm. this is what I like. And eventually I want that to be successful. I don't want to change who I am. So how do you kind of consult and get people like either in the middle or is in the middle kind of bad? Is that a place you don't want to be like where, how do you kind of deal with that aspect of it? Yeah. um, I'll give an example about a partner of mine and how we were going through that right now. And then, you know, you mentioned that you think I should make content. So I'll tell you about something that I'm working on right now. Actually. Um, so my partner beyond wrestling, like I said, we were sort of looking to engage uh, the United States audience a little bit more. And an idea that I came up with for him that he's been doing for the last couple of weeks now is he's been interviewing wrestlers over Zoom about their life and their career and who they are. And, and a lot of times wrestlers are in character. Uh, they always are portraying somebody on, on, you know, in the ring. But something that we've seen work in the post game uh, is people just want to know who you are. And a lot of times people just follow athletes on Instagram because they want to get to realize that they're normal people too. So he started doing these interview series where he's kind of like take off the mask and talk to these guys. Um, and it didn't, it didn't do that great at first. It probably his, most of his videos get tens of thousands of views. And I think he got three, 4,000 views on the first couple they did, but I, I called him and I was like, I love this. I learned a bunch of things that I did not know about these wrestlers and, and you, I think you're really great on camera. It's actually the first time he's been on camera. So he took a new step in his career, but um, I was like, do you like it? Are you enjoying doing this? And he said, yeah, actually it's like something I look forward to every week. And you know, a lot of times, and I dealt with this with my dog, I've started posting way less because how many same pictures can I post of my dog? If you, if, if there's a new type of content that you can spice up your channel with, but also something that you you're passionate about, there's a whole aspect of, wellness that people don't think about when it comes to content creation. You can get so obsessed with the analytics and the numbers and making sure we're growing constantly. But I think there's a balance that you can find there between like, what do you like to do? And in, the, in, the, in his example, getting to know wrestlers, uh, you know, and, and showing his fans and all the feedback we've gotten has been positive. Now, viewership is on those videos is five times less than usual, but every comment says, this is amazing. I want more of this, right? So, so, so maybe listen to your, the loudest voices sometimes is what I would say and do things that make you happy. I love it. That's fantastic, Justin. This was awesome, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, is there oh. is there an opportunity for me to talk about what I'm what I'm thinking? Yeah, about yeah. Doing? I was asked, I was just remembered. Yeah. Please tell me what you're you're creating now. You went from not creating anything to maybe now writing a book. Also, right? Yeah. We well, had the I, idea I, for the book in there. You got to write that. Um, this is not something I plan on talking about this podcast, but something that I've been getting into recently. Um, there's a there's a tradable card game called Magic: The Gathering. I love magic. I've been Do playing you? magic since I was in like second grade, dude. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, then we'll talk after this for sure. Awesome. Um, I, when I was seven, I sort of switched over from sports cards to magic cards. And I am actually a giant collector. Um, my collection is worth about over $50,000. And I regularly am speculating on cards um, because magic cards are kind of like stocks. Um, when a new card comes out, it can make an old card that's worth nothing spike in value, or it's, it's, it's a really interesting ecosystem of the game. And um, I recently have been speculating on, on cards with, the, which, with a bunch of new ones that have come out and have been making really, really, really big margins on my sales. So um, I'm, working out a figure, I'm working out a way to either, I'm writing articles that I'm either going to be posting on Reddit for free to those communities, or I'm thinking about maybe reaching out to uh, EDHREC, which is a, uh, a site that um, does articles based on the format of, of the game that I play. I don't know if this is going to relate to any of your, of your viewers. Does, this is your story, man. This is a part of it. I'm really, I'm really good at it. And um, part of me wants to do it because I, I, if there's like a budget aspect of it, it's sort of like I, you should get these cards now because they're going to go up in value. But then the part that I haven't quite figured out yet is 
how do I let people know that I'm also sort of invested in these cards, but at the same time, I'm a really, really big player and a fan of the game. So I want, so I'm telling you this for, for two reasons, because you should get in now, but also like I have a position in these as, as well, if that, may, if that makes sense to you. So that's some content that I'm working on making. I don't know if it's going to be a YouTube channel. Like I said, I'm not really a big fan of like having my face on camera, but uh, certainly the written medium and, and maybe, you know, we'll see what comes of it. But that's something that I'm working on is I have a pretty serious portfolio of successes in, in Magic the Gathering, and I want to um, try to get that information out there a little bit more. I love it, man. Give me any article links that you want. I'll share them all. And how about this? I can be your ghost face. <laughs> okay. Let me, you write everything. You do the script, and you just put me on camera, man. Like, I would love to help you and whatever. You can keep most of the money, too. How's that sound? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, no, if, if, I, don't know, I don't know how serious you are about playing or if your collection's sizable and all, but I'd love to talk to you about it. For a it was a lot more when I was younger. Um, and then we got to college, and all my friends started spending way more money on it than I did. And I pretty much was just left in the dust. So now I just play with their decks. So I, I didn't even, like, I gave away all my cards because I didn't really care. I gave them all to my cousin, also named Justin. We've spoken about him a couple times. And, uh, yeah, I kind of gave him all my cards. So now I just play with other people's decks who, yeah, they, they invest thousands of dollars as well into their collections. But if you ever come out with that content, believe me, I'll let my six friends know and they will all Great. be ecstatic because they'll get to, and also all you have to do is put that disclaimer. Hey, uh, this is what I see happening, but I also own a stake in this. So, okay, so in case. I'm right. going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to explain this in the most layman's terms possible, but I, I made a giant spreadsheet. I basically created my own analytics yesterday. There's a new card that was released that is going to make other old cards much better. So I made a spreadsheet that says how many cards you can draw now with something, how many cards you can discard, how many total net cards you're going to see. And basically you can learn about how good a card is going to be and how undervalued it is from the spreadsheet that I created. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to release wow. it, but, but that's kind of how I look at it. I even look at magic that way. Magic is not necessarily an analytical game. It's usually like, how does this card interact with this card? But there are so num if, if you look into it further enough, there are numbers involved and you can really get into the nitty gritty of how strong something can be by spreadsheets <laughs> justin i'm not gonna lie i didn't expect this to take this this big of a turn at the end uh, yeah. but i'm really glad it did because it lets me know a little bit more about you and i always think that's the most important part as you were saying with your wrestling client also didn't think we'd talk that much about wrestling but here we are um you know that that it's it's the storytelling aspect people want to know the person behind the mask people want to know the person behind the screen behind the phone call and really get to learn about who they are so maybe we'll do another one of these just totally on magic the gathering how's that sound I'm down. I'm really down. That'd be, that'd be super fun. Love it, man. Good stuff. Um, last question, actually. Uh, I always like to ask this, and maybe you have an answer, maybe you don't, but I always like asking career trajectory. You know, obviously, you've been with the post game for a while now. You've been through a couple CEOs at this point. You love what you do. You love where you are. You love how you do it. I don't see you leaving the company anytime soon, but as we've said, you know, maybe you start creating your own content, maybe you're doing some of your own stuff. Is there anything that you kind of see near future, intermediate, you know, deep future that is something that you're at least interested in kind of getting into a little bit more outside of, or including maybe this magic gathering stuff? Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know if I've ever said this aloud to a colleague of mine, but I, I'm not planning on leaving. I love working for the post game. Um, if Reddit ever got it, had a job opening, I'd probably go work there. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I love, we'll I love Reddit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it at that, man. Cause people that love, again, people that love magic, understand what you're talking about. People that love Reddit know exactly what you're talking about there. So Justin Moser, director of video strategy and operations at the post game. All around great guy, smart analytical dude with an Instagram famous dog and a Magic the Gathering spreadsheet that people would die for. I really appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much. Uh, let's connect after this. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Justin. As I said, super knowledgeable, so much fun to get to chat with and talk to. And obviously everything that he taught us, please listen to this a couple of times because some of it is very difficult to understand for me, but I think he did a great job at giving it to us in a way that is digestible. So I think that part is fantastic. And what he is able to do with his clients at the post game and how he's been able to help so many people over the seven, eight years he's been there, I think is absolutely fantastic. And shout out to the post game for employing some of the coolest people that I've ever had the opportunity to talk to. So please make it for sure to follow justin all of his socials are in the show notes also his dog make sure to follow his dog he's in the show notes as well so i think that's pretty cute and please make sure to give us a five-star review on whatever application you're using itunes apple google play spotify subscribe and reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts and that's how these things get to go a little bit further and a little bit wider so thank you all so much for your time it's the only thing we don't get more of and i appreciate you giving me some of yours so i hope you make it a wonderful day yes!